Hello, and welcome to the Peed Centered Podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Alatag, and today I'm going to be talking about bleeding and thrombotic disorders in the acute care setting. Today I'm talking with Dr. Chinny Pokola, who is an associate professor and the fellowship director of pediatric hematology and oncology at the University of Oklahoma. We're going to talk about diagnosing and evaluating hematologic disorders in the acute setting and meaning that these are previously unknown issues rather than our known patients with hematologic disorders. Thanks for joining me, Tinny. Yeah, no problem. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. So I'm going to take it from, you know, sort of truly the unknown patients, the child who walks in with sort of signs and symptoms of a potential hematologic problem. And I'll start with just the child who comes in who's pale or sallow. And when saying that, I do want to say, look, let's exclude trauma patients because for them, that answer is relatively easy, right? They're bleeding somewhere. We have transfusions. We have mass transfusion protocols. We're going to use those. Give blood. Stop the bleeding. Like, that's fairly sort of, you know, straightforward answers. But talking about the non-surgical patients, the patient who comes in and is anemic, first off, how are these kids going to present to us? What are their complaints really going to be? Yeah, great, great question. So... You know, obviously, like, you know, still the most common reason we see kids show up to the ER for anemia is often nutritional. And so they may be relatively kind of have a milder history of things where you may not have like kind of acute headaches and dizziness, blurry vision or things because they're kind of compensating over time. But um, you may just have general development of pallor, maybe some decreased energy, fatigue and things like that that may happen kind of gradually uh, the PCP kind of picks on often have a diet history that's, you know, tons of milk, very little normal foods and things like that, that, you know, are kind of for classic in the age group or as classic as, you know, kind of one to five age when you're transitioning off a of formula onto drinking cow's milk and some, some kids just love their milk bottle. I find those kids to almost be, I mean, they're almost like a caricature when they come in, right? Like just these, these, yellow, pale, 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 little chubby kids who are holding, you know, like almost a gallon bottle of milk and sucking on it as you're talking to them. Uh, it's, uh, it's like they have it it's a, on their on her hip like a flask uh, yeah. and they part with it. It's, it's absolutely true. And we've done kind of better education and PCP part of routine childhood screening is checking for, you know, hemoglobin as well as lead levels at the same time. For those kids that have like particular iron deficiency anemia, you also might have these odd behavioral things like eating dirt, eating paper, uh, and you know, kind of non-nutritional things, pica. And that can also kind of often lead to concurrent lead poisoning. You know, we kind of get taught that, you know, lead poisoning can cause microcytic anemia. But kind of from a hematology standpoint, a lot of times we think of it, it's kind of related to you have iron deficiency and that's causing you to eat stuff like paint chips and unfortunately there's still lead-based paint that's out there yeah um, so that's how they sometimes will will kind of get the lead into the system is because they have underlying iron deficiency anemia i mean obviously their kids still just be normal and eat some paint chips for fun but um but well, a lot why of not and if yeah exactly when you see kind of iron deficiency anemia at a high lead level or, or you see uh, anemia at a high lead level is probably due to the iron causing them to go you know, just eat non-nutritive things like, you know, like I said, frequently dirt, paper, uh, cardboard, uh, and, and like I said, wall wall siding and things like that. So, so yeah. We see a lot of coin ingestions and ingestions of toys and things like that. I don't really think so much. I, I'm not super worried about lead poisoning in those kids, but then you yeah. heard some weird 
craft things <laughs> that they're eating yeah. that, that aren't those sort of little fun like toy candy shaped objects that makes yeah. you sort of question yeah and so that's kind of with our you know those sort of kids that have kind of nutritional anemia is usually kind of slower kind of over time and they're often well compensated so these are kids that look you know, hemodynamically stable despite having like a hemoglobin of four uh, mm-hmm. or five. It's kind of like how our sickle cell patients often have, you know, have a hemoglobin of six or seven that you or me or a normal teenager wouldn't be moving around and that's just how they live. So the kids that acutely drop kind of where they're otherwise well and then they have a rapid drop, those are the kids that often will have kind of marked kind of pallor, uh, decreased activity. Older kids will often complain of like headaches, nausea and vomiting. And so that's you, know, you think about more an acute uh, acute loss or acute decrease in hemoglobin. Um, and so, you know, obviously, if you've had a history of trauma or things like that, then, you, you know, this is probably due to acute blood loss. But things like acute hemolytic anemia can also cause massive drop in your hemoglobin and you don't have a history of blood loss. And so that's why obviously taking a good history will give you some of the, the answers or, or an idea of which way to go. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through managing acute hemolytic anemia? That is, I admit, that's just sort of one of those diagnoses that has this huge fear factor for me because, you know, I I think like an ED doc cause and effect, like problem fix, (laughs) immediate things. But it's it's a little bit scary because these kids are lysing and then maybe blood is going to make it worse. And so what what do we do if we suspect that and how rapidly do we need to act as opposed to these little nutritional anemia kids uh, or even like the mineraja girls who are coming in who you have some time to think about it right right yeah so because these kids can have an acute drop be very can be very quick obviously history can be important find out whether it was a new kind of trigger or something like that would happen like you know it's not often but sometimes some antibiotics can cause massive hemolysis things mm-hmm. like brown or spider bites can also cause hemolysis but a lot of times these are kind of may have a vague history kind of like with itp where you have like some sort of you know infection and that triggers the autoantibody formation with the history you often have uh, you know we'll have like on exam we'll often have a lot of jaundice and uh in addition to kind of looking pale on labs you know if you suspect somebody so if somebody comes in this guy kind of decreased activity looks pale looks fatigued like you're concerned they're very anemic you know making sure that you send off antibody testing so uh a direct antibody test or coombs test uh is very important um for most of our autoimmune hemolytic anemias, you have IgG-mediated process and a direct Coombs test where you kind of can detect pro- uh, those antibodies present on red blood cells is a good way to know, oh, yeah, this is a, a immune-mediated. And most of ours that are autoimmune hemolytic anemias are warm antibodies, um, which will show up on a Coombs test. The antibody screen, like if you're like typing, you know, I think while you're sticking them, if you, th- if you have a suspicion that they have like a hemolytic anemia, then I've been initiated the direct antigen test or direct Coombs, you know, you send like a type and screen because for potential transfusion. And so the type and screen will kind of check the patient's serum to look for any antibodies they have there. And that's where you can kind of figure out whether they have, you know, uh, also can be very helpful for matching and things like that. So it can be challenging because this is where you, you know, uh, if you have suspected autoimmune hemolytic anemia, you want to be able to give them blood, but if you just give them blood without immune suppression, you're not going to have much of a response. Yeah. So we typically start off with, you know, solumetrol or prednisone, pretty, you know, like one per kilo per dose, like Q6. So pretty aggressive, depending on kind of what you think that's going on. That typically works well if you have like 
a positive DAT and it's a warm antibody, which is which is most of the cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, while I'll slow down red blood cell destruction, you also need to make sure that you're giving them some blood because they're not going to just respond. A lot of these kids who are really bad extremists, their hemoglobin is like less than five, you need a transfusion. And so, and it can be tricky. So some, most, a lot of times, you know, um, the blood bank will be able to find you something, but sometimes they, they may be a long delay, in which case you can ask him to give the least incompatible blood. Mm-hmm. So kind of like the most, most compatible or least incompatible. Because if it's the, that, you may still have some antibody reaction, but it may not be as severe um, as like, you know, like an AB mismatch or, thing, or an RH mismatch type of situation. And so uh, we sometimes will see that with our kids with sickle cell while we do like extended screening because some of those kids will have like antibiotic as minor antigens. And so you do extended screening, they'll kind of figure out some of those like kind of things. And they can take a little bit longer to kind of get some of that blood. Um, you know, worst case scenario, like, you know, O negative or, you know, emergency release can be used in those cases. I think we don't have to do that a lot. Most of the time, you know, these kids will not be quite as symptomatic and will be able to get some blood that you can transfuse. And usually, we'll probably a pretty good response as you, you know, stop the antibodies with the steroids. And then afterwards, once they're kind of admitted and stabilized, we'll eventually kind of taper them off the steroids. We don't really use immune IVIG like we use for ITP as much. It doesn't work as much. And sometimes you can even get, you know, we see sometimes with some kids with ITP where you give IVIG and you'll get hemolytic anemia from the IVIG. Um, and so IVIG is not generally like the first line treatment that we use. So it's still, still corticosteroids and then a transfusing with the best matched blood that you possibly can get. So kind of like acutely, you first want to kind of make sure that you're, you know, that before you obviously pump them full of high dose steroids, you know, do that, do the testing, look at the history. Some other labs that can give you an idea while you're waiting for the DHT is like, you know, your LDH will often be very, very high because you're having mm-hmm. cell destruction. Your haptoglobin will be low because uh, you're, you're consuming it, binding up the hemoglobin. And obviously, you know, want to make sure that there isn't some, you know, underlying history of like, you know, that there was somebody who might have spherocytosis that's been undiagnosed or, uh, you know, a, a, thalassemia, a, a known thalassemia, but the family may not remember, uh, things like that. Um, usually with the immune hemolytic anemia, it's like the lab will comment on having a lot of spherocytes on the peripheral smear as opposed to like, you know, like target cells you see with thalassemia or schistocytes you see with like a, like a thrombotic microangiopathic, like an HUS TTP type of picture or things like that. Um, you do want to make sure that you are ruling out some of those other things. And so like a metabolic profile to make sure the kidney function, liver function, all those are good. You know, you should see an indirect hyperbilirubinemia, not a direct hyperbilirubinemia, because then you have to think about like liver, liver issues or something like that causing your jaundice. Yeah, and I'll just put in a plug for, you know, we we know from trauma that it is very easy to get a type in screen. You can do it on clotted blood. You can do it, you know, you don't have to have a lot. But I think when we're, we're really, really good at saying, hey, the undifferentiated sick kid, get a blood culture and set it aside and we'll think about it later. Once we get more history, we'll send it. We don't always do that with the type in screen. And so I'll put in a plug for yeah. getting the type in screen in the kid who's sort of undifferentiated sick and pale or purpuric or something that just doesn't quite seem right that might go into the hematology direction because the sooner the blood bank gets that the sooner they can help us if it is something hematologic and we need to act on it very quickly absolutely 
And then can you think of any situation where it would be problematic to put oxygen on these kids until we figure out what's going on? No, especially if there are, some of these kids can get hypoxic. I don't think there's a reason, a contraindication to, you know, for kids who have sickle cell disease, you don't need to get chronic oxygen exposure if they're not hypoxic, isn't good for them because we want them that can lose their reticulocytosis. And those kids, their cells are irreversibly sickled. And so, you know, the oxygen is going to unsickle them. Um, right. And some of the kids, if they're uncomfortable or if they're hypoxic, you know, they have decreased oxygen carrying capacity. And so being on, you know, that's also, that's not, uh, that's not inappropriate at all. And you sort of touched on things like thalassemias and hemoglobinopathies and things, you know, since you and I trained a while back, um, <laughs> newborn screening has advanced a lot, really, and it has expanded quite a bit. So what surprises are we still likely to see in terms of the thalassemias, the hemoglobinopathies, the inherited anemias that, you know, we we used to get surprised by these a lot in the past, and it was it was a postnatal workup. Yeah. Um, what are we going to see now? Yeah, I'll have to say, like, we've expanded a lot in some of the realms of, like, metabolic testing and, like, for skid and some other things, CF, that we were when I was a medical student in the early 2000s, we didn't do. Um, and thankfully, from a hematology standpoint, from the, the hemoglobinopathies aspect, thankfully a lot hasn't quite changed a whole lot from that standpoint. You know, we're basically we're big things we're looking for is you know on the, on the newborn screen normal should should say kind of should say FA you know mainly he, fetal hemoglobin and some a uh, little bit of hemoglobin A and then later as you grow up you'll have majority A and a small amount of F A two those minor bands. Um, we do still look for like traits and so like for like uh, unstable hemoglobinopathies in particular sickle cell where you may see you know FAS which is like a sickle cell trait or FS which will be for like sickle cell disease. And then for, you know, some of our thalassemia traits, you may, you may see like FA and BART, so like with, with like alpha thalassemia trait. So some of those things, I think the biggest thing is just making sure that patients know what their newborn screening actually showed. Because I think there's challenges in getting the results out to families and to PCPs to follow up on. You know, sometimes it's pretty obvious, like, you know, if you have thalassemia disease, you're going to you're going to have like kind of issues with anemia kind of very, very early on, but some kids will kind of slip, slip past the goalie for a little bit. And so, um, you know, some of the traits aren't as quite as, you know, obviously a lot of the kids who have like thalassemia trait, it's not very, you know, clinically it's, it's insignificant for them, but you know, it's important to know in the future for if they have kids with somebody else who's got a thalassemia trait, uh, and particularly uh, somebody who's like Southeast Asian who has a higher chance of having more severe thalassemia disease, then that could be a consideration in family planning as well as thalassemia traits can cause microcytic anemia. And if you don't do a thorough workup on a kid with microcytic anemia, like, you know, really check to make sure they don't have, have like a low body iron, you're putting them in unnecessary iron therapy, which is, you know, not generally not harmful, but isn't, you know, risk-free and it's not, you know, it's unnecessary. You don't want to put, put somebody on a medicine they don't need. From the sickle cell standpoint, we still care a lot about making sure they get started like on penicillin prophylaxis early on. Um, I think we'd probably do a little bit better job identifying kids. I think families are more aware if their kid has sickle cell disease because they, I think there's been increased recognition about knowing your trait status uh, mm -hmm. before you have a child and, uh, and uh, your partner's trait status. So I think uh, that's been less of a problem. It's been, I think, probably still more of a challenge with some of these kind of thalassemia traits where families are like, 
Yeah, we were told it was something abnormal and we were supposed to repeat something, but, you know, now they're like five and they're healthy and everything. You're like, okay, but, you know, you're slightly microcytic anemia. It's probably a thalassemia trait and we can extend an electrophoresis test and we can kind of, that reverse engineer was probably on the newborn screen. Yeah, I, I mean, having having worked for many years at Altitude, I, I agree with you. People people would either forget what had been on the newborn screen or, you know, so they, would, they would be like, oh, yeah, we were told that this would never be a problem. But, you know, that their kid had sickle trait and they came up for vacation and all of a sudden their kid becomes symptomatic. And they were like, they right. well, this would never be a problem. You're right, unless you go up to, you know, a mile of elevation. Right, right. But it's all get dehydrated in extreme heat. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we'd actually, I feel like it was at least, you know, once a year or so that we would um, either remember or diagnose that a child had sickle trait up at altitude when they were visiting us and became symptomatic. Yeah. That's the way to figure it out. Yep. <laughs> no, nobody really enjoyed that. <laughs> it made for crummy vacations for them. Going back to lead poisoning, because increasingly yeah. we're—I feel like we're seeing, or I'm seeing more of this, just with um, municipality contaminations and lead in water lines and all the remodeling of houses and things. I feel like we got a great grip on this in sort of the 80s and 90s, and now it seems like we're seeing it. Yeah, and obviously like Flint and some places where. Yeah. Combination, so it's still still a problem. That's why it's still part of the the screening. And so, yeah, you can sometimes get some exogenous lead. You know, like classically, though, a lot of it kind of was kind of related to having underlying iron deficiency anemia, because also disproportionately kind of associated economic factors. You've got families that maybe you know a lot of people that live in houses that still had lead. Generally, poorer communities, kids that have less access to kind of well-balanced diets and where milk was cheaper. And so it's easier to throw milk at a kiddo than sometimes giving a, a better diet. And then yeah. you've got a house where there's more access to lead-contaminated paints and they're going to get, with their pica, get some lead ingestion. And so we do sometimes get referrals for like high lead levels, like for management and that's usually actually not in our wheelhouse for like chelation therapy although you know we, we if they've got microcytic anemia due to that like i said it just it's usually due to concomitant iron deficiency um so far i haven't seen anybody with the classic like basophilic stippling in the red blood cell right There's yeah classically that shows up on the boards but never really we have we don't see a whole lot of these days but yeah um you know i think there is you know obviously kind of concerns that uh, i kind of i most of the time we've seen like kind of Elevated lead with microcytic anemia, they've got iron deficiency at the same time. And there's, there's probably a high linkage there. So that that actually is, and and maybe this is not really so much of an issue of frequency or the epidemiology of it. I'd have to ask my toxicology friends. But I'm actually having kids come into the ED because they don't have primary care and they're asking for like we need to be checked for lead because we think we had an exposure. We don't have anywhere else to go. And so they come to me. So I think it's it's not something that's historically been in our wheelhouse in the acute care setting, but we are acting more and more as primary care physicians as yeah. years go on. And so, so should we starting in Dallas? We did that, we did a lot of that too. Oh, like, a lot of primary care, <laughs> a lot of primary care coupled with some critical care, just to you know keep us on our toes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so should we? You know, if we're seeing kids in the ED and we 
suspect probably we're not going to get a lead level back right away. But if we suspect lead poisoning based on history and the kids have some microcytic anemia, should we go ahead and start treating their anemia and then find a way to follow up with the other issue? Yeah, I think if you have if you have like you know findings that meet up consistent with iron deficiency anemia, then I think you can go ahead and treat, um, and then just uh, and then following up on the lead and just kind of going through the next step. But yeah, you don't need to defer the iron treatment until the lead comes back, um, especially if you're you know an iron panel is usually come back pretty quickly, so so you'll have a good idea. Yeah. So moving on to kids who present with something else, and this becomes. Uh, you know, can be a little bit scarier for us is the kid who comes in with a petechial rash or purpura. And, it, you know, I know the differential for that. That's our favorite panel on the really? exam is showing the picture of the kid who's the, you know, whose lower extremities is covered in petechiae. And it's like, which one of these deadly conditions is it? Is it ALL, Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, Meningococcus, ITP? Yeah, <laughs> our favorite picture. It's all, is it terrible child abuse? It's something really awful. Exactly, exactly. Unless it's HSP, which is which is not as bad. So you know, we we see so much vomiting in the ED that you know it's it, every couple of days I'll see a kid who has petechiae all over their little faces. But it's just it's just really vomiting. And we can kind of as a fellow, yeah, I got, I got many a consult from a nervous resident about uh, after a stomach bug with with them themselves having petechiae or their kid having yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely but yeah some of the other kind of petechiae in unusual places is you know um obviously we're kind of looking at the clinical history the well-looking kid who's got petechiae you know you think about itp and we often will have like an isolated like thrombocytopenia that's there so anytime you see petechiae in particular you know the cbc is probably the most important screen and then kind of using your other clinical history if they're well appearing you don't necessarily need to like send off coags and the whole ball of wax because um you know most of our kids that have just like you know just petechiae and no other like other bleeding issues then it's probably more like a platelet kind of thing especially you know assuming it's not like vomiting or something else or, or trauma related you know, the kids that have like things like HUS or TDP often have some other things going on, unusual fever. You may have jaundice due to microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, you know, uh, may have hypertension or swelling due to renal issues. A TTP, you may have neurologic changes, seizures, and other things as well. Um, usually those kids look a lot iller than your like, you know, kid who's got petechiae due to ITP. Yeah, and that's it is sort of nice that this is this is a skin finding that can be absolutely terrifying, but you can base it on how the kid looks. Does the kid look great? Yeah. They're probably fine. Did the kid look like they needed to be in the ICU twelve hours ago? They probably did. <laughs> you know, and you can, exactly. you can act accordingly. For these kids who are well appearing and have the petechial rash and we suspect ITP, what should we be doing in the emergent setting? And then, you know, where should we be directing them for management? So um, I think, you, you know, you get a CBC and you kind of confirm kind of your suspicions. And obviously, based on your other history, anything else you, you, you need to do. But the kind of otherwise well-appearing kid who suddenly has petechiae, uh, that history suggests of ITP, like maybe having like a URI a month ago, generally a CBC is all you need. Usually with like coagulopathies, you know, that would have a PGT, INR, uh, or von Willebrand's issues, you don't just have petechiae. And taking a good history like you know did this you know if it's a teenage girl had they you know this 
older and had normal periods before, you know, that probably bought little brands is probably not worthwhile to check or anything like that. You know, they didn't have bleeding with their circumcision or they're a boy or, you know, had no trouble with dental extractions, regardless of gender. This is probably not a inherited problem. It's probably more of an acute problem. And so that way you don't necessarily have to pan lab them up kind of based on how they look. Just the CBC is often good enough to kind of tell you. And if you see isolated thrombocytopenia, then that's probably your best bet. Um, keep, keep in mind, most of the, our listeners are working in the ED. We love to pan lab. Oh, no, it's okay. It's going to be hard to wean us from that. In hemop, we overlap as well. It's, it's okay. I'm a, we're part of a select fraternity where it's, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable as to why we do it. Um, but yeah, but I think, um, but you can kind of get at least a sense of what's probably going to come back a little bit. And so... But yeah, so the CBC is probably the most important one if you have, especially in some cases, maybe hard to a hard stick and you have just petechiae, then the CBC is going to get you the most bang for your buck. Then kind of for, you know, for clinical history, you want to know, you know, do they have, have they had any hematuria, any blood in their stool? Um, you know, for teenage girls, are they having like heavy menstrual bleeding? On exam, do they have any like oral mucosal bleeding, like wet purpura in their mouths or on their tongue? Because bruising and PTKI, while it can be unseemly and can make people very nervous, you know, it's not life-threatening. When you have uh, wet purpura, those kids that have wet purpura, some of the ones that are, are, you know, even though spontaneous head bleeds are very rare in, in, in acute ITP, those are kids that may tend to have be at a higher risk for having it. You know, you, you know, you trained with me in Southwestern where, you know, George Buchanan was one of the pioneers of the uh, treat the patient, not treat the number methodology. So uh, uh, I still remember on step two on the little practical thing, missing the question about managing the ITP patient <laughs> because I did it the newer way. And they were like, no, they, were, yeah, they said to admit the kids, start them on steroids and all this. So nowadays, if you're well appearing, even if your plate account is less than 10,000, if you just have you know, skin findings and the family is comfortable with uh, outpatient observation. And most of those kids don't necessarily need to be admitted to the hospital. They can, you know, you just got to give your friendly hematologist a call and say, hey, we've got a kid who we think the suspect might have ITP based off of this. And then we'll probably tell you, okay, we'll get them in the clinic this week. Tell the family to avoid, you know, medicine that can affect platelet function. So no ibuprofen, no aspirin, no Aleve, stop contact sports, uh, no trampolines, just in life in general, but even more for reason to get them off the trampoline and things like that. Uh, postpone any you know surgeries or dental procedures for a little bit until we get things sorted out. Now, if they have mucosal bleeding, so they have, if they had hematuria, if they had hematochesia, if they have oral mucosal bleeding, then those are kids that probably weren't getting admitted to the hospital initially. We still don't necessarily jump to doing treatment until we can kind of look at the peripheral smear to make sure that you see like large platelets you expect to see with ITP. Because occasionally you will have some kids who will have like inherited like small platelet microthrombocytopenia syndromes, which are due to production problems, in which case then like steroids or IVIG isn't going to help them very much. They need they need other things and platelet transfusions and things like that. Um, and there are some also some other inherited, you know, issues with platelet function that may not respond well to IVIG and steroids. Uh, and so we typically like, you know, if a kid who comes in who has wet purpura or has like some mild bleeding, but they're not anemic and otherwise look stable, we'd say, yeah, we'll admit them when as soon as we come in, we'll look at the smear. And then most of the time we'll, we'll, we'll do IVIG uh, to try to bring their platelet count up. Um, 
we've had recently kind of a run where there's been some patients who've like had some long, it's probably been ITP who've been like started on steroids and then we get consulted. Usually if you think that they need steroids, just consult us first. Um, and then we'll kind of help you kind of guide through decision-making. It's pretty unusual for like isolated thrombocytopenia to be a presenting symptom of like ALL, but every once in a while you'll, you'll get somebody like that. And then if you give them high doses of steroids, which it's like four per kilo per day of, of prednisone, you know, that can kind of make a you know potential diagnostic marrow harder to interpret. Um, if, if it turned out to be like an ALL, you might upstage them. So yeah, so I think, uh, you know, generally most of the time we won't, uh, the only thing we might tell you is like, you know, is whether you're considering doing IVIG kind of based on the symptoms and things like that. So talking about patients with malignancies, we're sort of talking about new presentations, but kids who have known malignancies, you know, I think we think a lot about infectious concerns with them as we should, but talking about bleeding issues, what should we anticipate when, when in their course of treatment? Um, and then, you know, on the converse, thrombotic issues and, and risk for, you know, hypercoagulable state, when, when in these patients should we be thinking about that yeah so i mean obviously the kids who have like <laughs> acute leukemias you know up front and their presentation because their bone marrow is is involved with cancer they're not going to have good platelet function um so you may have issues with bleeding due to thrombocytopenia they may need platelet transfusions there our kids who have myeloid leukemia are a higher risk of like having dic at presentation um, and so they they may have coagulopathy that might require FFP or cryoprecipitate, things like that up front. And so, um, so most of our new leukemia patients will often, because they often look a little bit iller, often get coags. And I think that's reasonable to check coags if you suspect there's a new leukemia, especially if you've got like, like more actual bleeding symptoms as opposed to just like skin bruising and things like that. And older kids as well who are more likely to have AML than ALL, uh, you might want to think about that a little bit too, checking coags. Then um, after starting treatment, you know, um, our kids who've got like myeloid leukemia, sometimes their DIC and coagulopathy will get worse while earlier right after starting, which shouldn't be a big deal for emergency room physicians because those are kids who are going to be in the hospital <laughs> and so you won't be involved with their care. Afterwards, you know, depending on like their diagnosis, you know, you'll you'll get varying degrees of myelosuppression from chemotherapy um, where their blood counts, like for kids with solid tumors, you're getting like kind of cycles every, you know, several weeks, usually about like, you know, 10 to 14 days into a cycle is when their blood counts are going to be at the lowest. And so that's when they may come in with, with fever and be neutropenic. That's also when you may have thrombocytopenia. And you just kind of base your decision on when to transfuse platelets kind of based on symptoms. You know, if they're well appearing and their platelet count is like above 10,000 and not having any bleeding, eh, we might just let it ride and just do observation. Mm -hmm. If they're febrile, then we usually we say, yeah, if you're less than 20,000, you probably need some platelets because you're going to have more platelet consumption, you're more risk for bleeding. Um, and obviously, if you're bleeding, like often you'll see like epistaxis, you know, uh, some kids abdominal tumors, maybe more likely get like hematuria, especially like our Wilms tumor kids. And things like that that might require a platelet transfusion and then kind of talking about coagulopathy so any kid who's got a port uh, or or a, a pick line or a, you know a, or a central line is because it's still a foreign body in there even if you're like cytopenic you can still get clots this even happens with hemophilia patients who are you know you know baseline you know heavy you know easy bleeders will still just having that foreign body in will cause some local thrombosis 
And so, so any of our kids that have a catheter that's in, we worry if they ha- start having like, you know, prominent veins around their area where they had their, their catheter placed, um, if they have swelling of the arm that, that's in. We see this more often, like pick lines are much more likely to get thrombosis than, than ports, um, and the same with central lines. That's why we kind of have to flush those like every day at home, those external catheters versus the port where we don't have to unless we're accessing it. And so, um, Kids who have AL who have ALL are at more risk for like during induction and particularly of getting like sinus venous thrombosis due to like pegasparaginase, which is like which causes a lot of clotting cascade dysfunction as that increases your risk for clots. Such a bad drug. I mean, I yeah. know it's an important drug, but it's such a bad drug. Important, but a lot of wild, a lot of wild side effects. Yeah. Where you have like, you know, it's not, you know, it can cause pancreatitis, but so can the steroids, it can cause this and so can the other things. So it's, it can be very, very challenging. Um, but yeah, but that like sinus venous thrombus due to pegasparaginase is, you know, that's kind of foreign for our kind of non-catheter related thrombosis that we can see. And then some of our other kids who got like large solid tumors in the abdomen who, you know, aren't resectable up front or like some of our sarcomas where we, we plan on doing like a delayed resection, you know, direct pressure on vessels can lead to narrowing. Cancer itself is this kind of odd, like, uh, in pro-thrombotic states, so just having cancer in general will increase your risk, and then you're throwing on other risk factors on top of it. Um, and so, so it can be kind of complicated. Um, and so, um, so yeah, you, once again, kind of, kind of take a look at the history. You know, if the, you know, uh, like I said, most of our thrombosis that we still see is still more often catheter-associated, definitely more with PICC lines, which is why we try to do a port if we can, like our, like, especially our ALL patients. Um, and then external catheters, which unfortunately for kids who have like AML, that's the standard to use because you just need so many access points. You know, those kids are also a little higher risk, but we're also flushing them very, very frequently and watching them in the hospital. But you know, still can also get a thrombosis and needs anticoagulation. All right. I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your expertise and for reminding us of some things that we, you know, we don't see in the acute setting as often. And so can get a little, I don't know, can get a little hair raising, but kids come in with these. Yeah, no, I know. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always a great to talk about these things and to, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, giving a refresher because, you know, you guys are on the front lines trying to, you know, figure these out. And, you know, uh, we can sometimes as specialists, you know, can get uh, in retrospect to scope can be everything it can be different. Uh, but, you know, you guys are the ones that primary care physicians are the ones on, you know, on the front lines making, you know, making some of these first decisions and being being alert to these conditions. And so we appreciate you guys' help. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it, Jenny. Oh, great. Thanks so much. Good talking to you. You too.